this week on the Back Table Podcast. One thing, you, one thing you could try. I don't know if you've ever tried this, Ashley or, or Gopi, but you know you can you can offer somebody just do a myringotomy. You can just say, hey, let's just make a small incision in the eardrum. Why don't you kind of test drive that for a week or so by the time it heals? And you know if, if their symptoms are better with that, then then you can place a tympanoscopy tube, and you really haven't you know placed a tube with really not needing one. So I think that's a, a, a good technique to try on some of these patients. Welcome back to the Backtable ENT podcast. Um, we are your hosts. I'm Ashley Agan. And I'm Gopi Shaw. And we have a very special guest with us today. We have um, Dr. Walter Coots joining us. We've both known Dr. Coots for a long time. He's the Associate Program Director uh, for our residency program here at UT Southwestern. And the Fellowship Director for Neurotology. Um, Ashley was a resident under him. I was a pediatric ENT fellow and got to work with Dr. Coots as an attending doing pediatric ears. So he taught us, taught us a lot about yeah. ear surgery and otology. And, you know, he did his training down, he did a residency down in Baylor and Houston, and then did his fellowship at the house clinic. He's super accomplished clinically as well as academically. He's part of the Triological Society, the American Neurotology Society, teaches multiple courses annually at the AAO and CSF fistulas. He's a reviewer on, of multiple journals, including the Laryngoscope, as well as Otology, Neurotology. And he's a dad, a softball coach, as well as a, a tuba player. He's a musician. <laughs> Does it all. Wears all the hats. Yeah. <laughs> so welcome to the show, Walt. Hey, that was a, an awesome introduction, more than I deserve for sure, but I appreciate it. And it's great to be part of the podcast. I've enjoyed listening to the Backtable podcast, so it's great <laughs> to be part of it. Well, thank you for being here. Today, we're going to talk about chronic eustachian tube dysfunction and how to ma diagnose, manage, treat these patients. They are difficult. Yeah, I well, agree with that. They yeah. challenging. So just to kind of take it to basics, I find that sometimes it's hard to diagnose chronic eustachian tube dysfunction. You know, you have the patient, you know, kids at meteor tubes, you have Maybe an adult that comes into your clinic and has, you know, some ear fluid but never had problems before. What at what point do they become a chronic eustachian tube player? Yeah, I mean, I you sort of get the sense of it, right? You know, you 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 get the history if they've seen their pediatricians over and over, and they've they've had uh, you know ear infections, and you see them and they have a serous effusion. Um, but I, I guess the you know technically they need to have the, the eustachian tube dysfunction greater than three months. So, I mean, if you want to look at uh, the, the strict definition, but you, you kind of get an idea of the, the patients are going to have the chronic eustachian dysfunction. Yeah. And I think the, you know, the easy ones are the patients who come in and have like a type C tympanogram and you say, okay, like you have ear pain because you have eustachian tube dysfunction and we have an objective measure of it. But I, I, I think it can be kind of tricky patients who maybe have some intermittent eustachian tube dysfunction, but you see them and they have type A tympanograms. And then you, you know, you kind of are wondering whether they could be a candidate for, for tubes or not. And maybe they have a history of saying they have ear infections, but you've never actually seen fluid and it looks normal when you see it. You know, I think those can be kind of tricky too. I think there's that patient and then there's, you know, Patients that come in where, you know, everything is sucked down, their uh, eardrum is on the promontory, the audio looks normal, and they don't have symptoms. Mm -hmm. And those, to me, are also difficult, you know, and how to manage those. Are those some of the types of patients that you see? Or, you know, what other type of phenotypes do you see, Walt? Yeah, I mean, you know, I think the first 
patient describing the ones that they, they have, you know, ear fullness, they have, you know, some intermittent pain, you know, that it's suggestive of eustachial dysfunction. They come in, but every time they come in, their tympanograms are normal. You don't see fluid, you don't see retraction. At that point, I'm probably thinking about other problems. You know, do they have most commonly temporomandibular joint dysfunction or TMJ dysfunctions? What I'm really thinking about if they have a normal exam. Actually, if a patient has cervical spine issues, sometimes that can radiate uh, to the ear and they may have ear fullness and ear pain from that. Of course, you always want to make sure they don't have any sort of neoplasm. So, you know, a good head and neck exam is always important, especially if they have persistent otalgia. But in the, the patients that, that, you know, say, well, my ear's full all the time or my ears are full all the time, but their tympanograms are normal, their exams are normal. I'd be very hesitant to do any more than, you know, talk to them about allergies and allergy treatments. You know, you may think about, well, should I place a tympanoscopy tube or not? In my experience, seeing patients that have had that done on the outside coming in, a lot of times they're not very happy with the tube. They sort of feel there's a tube there and their symptoms actually worsen. Yeah. I, one thing, you, one thing you could try, I don't know if you've ever tried this, Ashley or, or Gopi, but you know, you can, you can offer somebody just to a myringotomy. You can just say, Hey, let's just make a small incision in the eardrum. Why don't you kind of test drive that for a week or so by the time it heals. And you know, if, if their symptoms are better with that, then, then you can place a tympanoscopy tube and you really haven't, you know, placed a tube with really not needing one. So I think that's a, a, a good technique to try on some of these patients. Yeah, I agree. I, I, I think that's, I, I, would favor that route as well as, as opposed to putting in a tube just to kind of see, see how things go. Cause, cause if they do, if the, the discomfort or the fullness truly is due to eustachian tube dysfunction, they should feel relief with a myringotomy, right? Yeah, you would think so. Exactly. And then you can, you know, just let them try the myringotomy and yeah, that's going to heal just about every time. And, and, and then do y'all just see them back at like three, four weeks? And then if the symptoms return, offer a tube in clinic or how do you you know, gauge the response and then what the next steps are in a patient like that. I, I usually will tell them to call me in a week or two. You know, they'll, they'll know probably within a few days, even, you know, sometimes, you know, I use a little phenol on a tympanum membrane and going through all that can give the sensation of fullness for a day or two. But after that, I think they'll kind of know, is it helpful or not? And I just tell them, Hey, give me a call in a week or two. And if, if, if that, if that improved your symptoms, you can come back in and we can place, you know, we can place it to, you know, if it didn't really help their symptoms we sort of have to start over, you know, what is causing their fullness. Yeah. Yeah. But that, you're, it certainly rules, rules out your station tube dysfunction, I would think. And you can kind of, that way you can kind of assure them that you're moving towards figuring out what's going on. Yeah. I think one thing that you have to think about that's easily missed is do they have patches of station tube, you know, where they're going to get fullness, um, but you look in their, their, their ear, it's normal, their tympanogram's normal, you know, but they sure have a history pretty consistent with that. And then you, you dig a little further and, and you ask them about things like hearing their own voice or having autophony, you know, sometimes if they're exercising, they'll hear the, hear the wind in their ear. And then on exam, if you look under microscopy, oftentimes if you have them occlude their nostril and breathe, you'll see the tympanic membrane moving back and forth with their, with their respiration. And I know, uh, Ashley, you're, you, you certainly have, uh, carved out a niche with eustachian uh, patches eustachian tube and I'd be interested to see if you have more comments about that yeah I mean now that I'm looking for it it's everywhere <laughs> that's right I don't think I ever diagnosed it I don't think I ever diagnosed it in residency and then now I've seen so many patients with it and sometimes you know speaking of patients who get a tube and then still have symptoms I've had some patients who come in and that's their presentation is that you know I had stuffy ear and then I got a tube and now I just feel like I'm, you know, I'm still stuffy and I feel like I'm talking in a barrel and it's terrible. And it's usually, it's because they have patchless eustachian tube. 
And and then the other thing about being able to see the eardrum move when they're breathing, they need to be sitting up. So if you lay them down to look with a microscope like you normally would when you're doing otoscopy in the clinic, you probably won't see it because usually their symptoms are better when they're laying down because you get that um, kind of uh, edema of the eustachian tube when they're supine. But as far as, you know, taking care of those patients, um, I've been doing just transnasal endoscopic eustachian tube plugging with a shim, which is just a angiocatheter filled with bone wax. And those are probably my happiest patients. I've had really good results so far. So it's, it's pretty incredible. You know, those patients with pasteurization tubes, you know, they're oftentimes, it takes a long time to see multiple doctors to be diagnosed and they're very frustrated. And, you know, I could see, uh, you know, if you're able to improve that, you know, they could be very appreciative, very annoying symptoms. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. In terms of patulus, in terms of diagnosis, for the difference between, you know, eustachian tube dysfunction and patulus, what are the two or three things in the history that you find that are different? And then do you end up scoping them and what do you find on your scope findings? Yeah, I'm going to let Ashley, I think Ashley's really has expertise <laughs> in this. So I'm going to say, I'm, I'm curious to learn a little bit. So well, well, yeah, uh, Ashley. They, they definitely can come in and look the same at the beginning uh, with, you know, that clogged stuffy ear feeling. So they, they both can have that. For patchless patients, the autophony to either their breath or to their voice and having symptoms better when they're laying down is pretty unique to patchless. The eustachian tube dysfunction patients, in my experience, aren't going to have those. So if you can ask the right questions and kind of pull that out, you you can, it, it's helpful. But, you know, similar to our dizzy patients, I think sometimes our patchless patients don't always know how to describe what they're feeling or experiencing. Sometimes I've had patients lately, I've had a couple that say their ear feels heavy. So they may not even, you know, when you, if you say, is your ear clogged or stuffy, they, they're like, no, it just, it feels heavy. So sometimes they don't know how to describe what they're feeling. On exam, if I can see the eardrum moving when they sniff, that's awesome. Like, I'm like, oh, yep, there it is. This is what you have. But I don't always see that. And then our audiologists have actually started doing some testing when they're doing tympanometry where they can measure the, whether the eardrum is patchless. And then they also have a test that they do that measures eustachian tube dysfunction where they're having the patient basically try to valsalva and clear their ears while they're doing the tympanometry. And so that's been helpful to try to get some sort of objective information. It's not always, it doesn't always show up on that either. But if we're going to the operating room, I, I would really like to be able to see the eardrum move. But if I can't, I mean, if we've ruled out everything else and their history is consistent with patchless, then I, you know, I've, I've had good success with that. And then on your nasal endoscopies, do you, do you do that pretty much for all the, yeah, all, all the, I think I usually scope all, all patchless and eustachian tube dysfunction just to kind of see what's going on back there. And the more I look for patchless patients, the more I can start to see it. You really need to be looking up into the eustachian tube. So um, you either need to use a flexible scope and look around, so around the back of the septum so you have the right angle. So if I'm looking at the right eustachian tube, I'll go in through the left side and turn and look around. So I'm kind of got the angle or use a like a 30 degree scope. To okay. Be able so you'll do co- opposite side with your flex mm-hmm. and snake it up. Mm-hmm. And then with the other one, or with the rigid, you're doing like a 30 degree. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And when you're looking up into the orifice, like, is it a couple mil- millimeters in? And are you 
seeing that there's space. And so you're like, oh, that's patchless or is it? Yeah, it's not. I, I don't know if I have a perfect way. Like it's it's very much like a, a feeling. <laughs> like you kind of yeah. look at it and you're like, eh, that looks kind of patchless. I mean, you you will see for some patients, you will see a gap. Okay. And when they when they sniff, you, you might see it kind of come together. Sniffers, that's a common patchless symptom to patients who are sniffing a lot because when they sniff, it kind of pulls the eustachian tube close and they'll get relief of symptoms. But but Dr. Kuz, an interesting patchless patient is would be the patchless patient that also has like retraction or cholesteatoma. That can happen too, right? Yeah. I mean, you were mentioning, you know, these chronic sniffers, you know, they, I think they like having that, the kind of negative pressure, kind of relieve some of that autophony. And so, yeah, if someone is constantly sniffing and that tympanum membrane get pulled in enough to create a cholesteatoma. And, you know, we oftentimes think cholesteatoma occurs only from eustachian tube dysfunction where you have this chronic negative pressure. Right. I've seen it in patients that are chronic sniffers as well. And the challenging thing about that, it's going to stop that habit. It is a very hard habit to break. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. It's almost like your, your throat clearing patients or your chronic mm-hmm. patients. It just becomes something that they're just kind of doing. Without. So if you have a cholesteatoma in a patchless patient who's a chronic sniffer, in terms of like, let's say, you know, you have to, you know, do the, do a tympanoplasty, possible mastoid, and you have to repair the drum. Are you always you know, pretty much using cartilage at that time. How was, I guess my question is, what's the success rate for repairing the drum with a chronic sniffer? I mean, I think it's probably similar. I think what I worry more about if they don't break that habit that they may create another cholesteatoma. So I would certainly use cartilage in those patients. I've never thought about, you know, if they're still sniffing, trying to shim or something like that. I mean, it's just something you could try. You could, you know, if they're starting to retract, you could put a tympanostomy tube in. Hopefully they'll tolerate that being with the patch station tube. And some patients actually, that helps them somewhat. But uh, yeah, I think you just have to use a lot of cartilage and then try to convince them to stop that habit. I've had a few patients that, that have actually stopped the habit, made it pretty seldom where it's not causing problems. And, and you would think that if you're using cartilage to, for your tympanoplasty, that that would help with the patchless symptoms too, right? Because the eardrum is kind of heavier and less likely to move when it's when they're sniffing, maybe. Yeah, that's a great point. That's actually one of the treatments for patchless station tube. If they have a, you know, you can actually mm-hmm. do a cartilage tympanoplasty. Sometimes you can you can place like a like a paper patch with some bacitrace and ointment, make the tympanum membrane heavy, and it, sometimes that'll you know improve the symptoms. Then you can consider doing a uh, cartilage graft and panoplasty that's as part of the treatment for passive stage tube, even without a cholesteatoma. I've really not done that often. But. Yeah. I've, I've done, I've done that in clinic to, to kind of ch- try to just figure out if it is patchless before, you know, like if it kind of sounds like patchless, but everything I can check is negative. I've tried the whole, you know, to just put weight, weight the eardrum to see if that helps with their symptoms. And I, I think that's can be helpful for sure. Mm-hmm. Hey, Ashley, do you, do you, do you have good success using topicals? You know, people will use topical estrogen nasal drops or there's this patulend. Do you try those with the patients uh, that have patulization tube and what is your, your success? I do usually have them try patulend. I have not had a lot of success Mm -hmm. uh, personally, but you know, I, there are some patients who, who I haven't seen back. So it, it may be that they, there are some that use it and then don't come back to see me because maybe they're doing better. Or I'll have some patients who say they use it and maybe it, work, it helps a little bit, but usually the ones that I'm 
seeing again are it's because it's not working and and I, it, it it does burn so it's it's uncomfortable to use because uh, the whole you know the whole point is that it's trying to create some inflammation and and puff up the those tissues the eustachian tube so so actually um going back <laughs> because I do peds, I don't really see much patulous eustachian tube can you explain the drops like the pathophys like mm-hmm. why you know what it's supposed to do yeah. And what Patulend is. And- yeah. Patulend is a drop that was developed by a physician in Santa Barbara, California. And you put it in your nose and you kind of hold your head such that your eustachian tube is kind of the most dependent part of your head and put the drops in your nose so that their drops are kind of going down and sitting right at the orifice of the eustachian tube. And it's just a, it's a compounded medication, like a supplement. So it's not, it's not a prescription. It's just a proprietary formula that is meant to create some inflammation in the mucosa and make it kind of bulk up and so that it'll close. Yeah. Got it. And then I'm not actually sure about what the, how the physiology would work for the estrogen drops. I've heard of people using estrogen drops. I haven't prescribed them before myself. Do you, do you know Dr. Coots? I mean, I've, I've tried them. I think it's the same sort of thing. It just irritates the, the, uh, eustachian tube and, and causes some swelling. I've had, I've had poor success. I think, I think part of it is that you have to place the drops the correct way. You have to have your head sort of turned to the side so that the, the drops actually stay on the eustachian tube orifice. If not, they'll just go right down the nasopharynx. Mm-hmm. So I think it's important that if you're going to try those drops, which I haven't had a lot of success with, I think it's important that the patient, you know, administer them the correct way or it's definitely not going to work. Right. And I've, I've heard and read that, that a tube can be helpful for like the, the clogged and stuffy feeling, but not so much the autophony, but I personally haven't had a lot of success with it. What, what about you? I'm the same way. I mean, it's, it's, I I have a lot of success with a tube. You could always, again, you could try myrigotomy, see if they like that. Just, you don't really have to commit to the tube, but I haven't had that much success with placing tubes for patchless mutation tube dysfunction. Yeah. But placing a shim, I would say works great. That's awesome. It's, it's, the patients are super happy and does the bone wax stay there for? Like if you, when you're counseling the patient and you're discussing the shim surgery, what do you tell them? Like, Hey, this can, this is good for a year, six months, five years, or do we know, do we know yet? The best, the longest study that looked at outcomes, looked at patient outcomes at 12 months and about half of patients had had recurrence of symptoms. So, and that's with the shim, which is kind of the best one. So with the other techniques, there was recurrence of symptoms earlier. Wow. Okay. Um, so it's meant to be there for a long time. It can fall out. It can, one complication that's really common is that you kind of overplug it and then they get fluid and you end up putting in a tube. Yeah. It's a very fine line because you're, you're trying to, you know, plug it just enough so they don't have symptoms, but that they still have some way to kind of move air around it. So, but most of them are, are, willing to try anything because they're just so frustrated and um, annoyed by hearing their voice echo with all the time voice and breath and so when you place the shim you're using a rigid scope mm-hmm. a 30 degree or mm-hmm. a zero but 30, 30 yeah so you can see and then you what kind of are you using just a cold knife to make an incision and in the- oh no there's no incision oh you just inject it you just, yeah, you just kind of wow. insert it okay. into the luminal eustachian tube and then it wedges at the bony eustachian tube. So it's a special catheter. It's uh, it's an angiocatheter. Okay. Yeah. 
Is there some length to it? I, I do 40. Wow. That's cool. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I'll show you. I'm like, I need to like get out of children's one day and come <laughs> what people like the real stuff. <laughs> Man. Yeah. But, but yeah, I mean, I think um, patchless isn't super common, but but for the patients who are experiencing it, it's it's a big, big quality of life issue. So it's nice to be able to have some tools to to help them. You know, flipping it back towards, you know, the opposite problem when patients have eustachian tube dysfunction and their eustachian tubes just don't work. These can be really um, tricky patients, too. And particularly, I think about the ones who keep extruding their tubes or who have had two T-tubes and then, and then, you know, they get a perf or they just have chronic drainage. Dr. Goods, talk to us about those patients because those can be. Those are hard. We see them in adults, adolescents craniofacial kids, which is a different, but I'm just talking about, I agree, that otherwise healthy adolescent adult patient. Those are tough. What are, what are some pearls? How do you manage it? Yeah. I, I don't know if I have any perfect pearls for that. I, <laughs> I agree. They're very challenging for sure. You know, I don't like going to T-tubes, you know, too soon, I guess. I'll try grommet tubes for, you know, for at least a few tries. And then, you know, if they're going to definitely need tubes, we'll put in a T-tube. I just think there's a high risk of a perforation. And honestly, if these patients have a perforation, it may be the best for them, right? It's kind of a chronic uh, or a permanent tube, I guess. If, if, you know, there's really no such thing, but a perforation can kind of act like that. But the problem with the T-tube, you know, you get a pretty big perforation with that. I would say, yeah, they tend to get be big. Yeah. Yeah, they really do. And so, you know, I think you're just doing the best you can to manage the patients. You know, you you bring them in, keep putting tubes. And then I've had some patients that play so many tubes or tympanic membrane gets very atrophic. And, yeah. you know, you're worried, are they going to even be able to have a tube, you know, re- retained because of the uh, thinness of the tympanic membrane. And a few on a few occasions, I've actually done a cartilage graft tympanoplasty where I've just placed a T-tube through cartilage, just lifted the drum, you know, cut out a little bit of drum and, and, and do that. And I've had good success with that. Again, that's somebody that's had, you know, multiple, multiple sets of tubes where there's really not much of a tympanic membrane to even retain a tube anymore. And, you know, that's, that's kind of my approach to tubes. I've really not done subannular tubes. You know, people describe, you can make a small little Right. A little passage in the ear canal and under the annulus of the tympanic membrane and you can place a T-tube through there. And that would probably last longer, but you still have the risk of the, the lumen of the tube becoming blocked, right? The T-tube's kind of mm-hmm. long, uh, kind of a small diameter so they can get blocked. So those aren't perfect either. So I just, you know, just manage it the best you can. For the cartilage with the T-tubes through them, how long do those tubes stay in for usually? Well, the ones I put in, I've been in practice 13 years. I think they've all that I can recall have stayed in. Okay. Again, I think the biggest risk of the tube is going to, you know, become blocked and then you can just take the tube out and replace it because now you, at least you're not going to get a large perforation, right? Because you've made a small controlled hole in the cartilage. Right. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if you have to take the tube out and place another tube, I don't think it would be, I don't think it'd be a very big deal, but so far I haven't had a problem with that. They've seen, you know, as far as I could tell, as long as the patient came back, I've had good success of those staying paid and in, in, in place. Yeah. Talking about, speaking of the atrophic drum, you know, I've had kids that I've taken to the OR planning for regular tube or a T-tube, whatnot. And it just, with the nitrous and just, you know, mass ventilation, that eardrum gets, just turns into an elast, a balloon that's lost all elasticity and to the point where it's hard to make an incision or figure out where your incision was and things, you know, that eardrum's kind of flopping in the breeze. Um, you know, have you found yourself ever in situations like that? And do you decide to still try to get a tube in or just call it or... I find that that happens every once in a while. And I just feel like I'm not sure what the best thing to do is next. 
Yeah, I've had that happen a few times. You know, I, I seem like I go and put a place a tube. I sort of look at it. Let's try the tube. And I don't recall the success of that, but if the tube takes and their drum becomes more normal with the tube, that's great. If they end up developing a small perforation, then you could probably do a cartilage graft and panel plastic, which they, it sounds like they may need anyway. Right. If the drum's that floppy. So I'd probably go and place a tube if I thought I could do it safely. I could see landmarks and those sort of things. I don't know, Ashley, have you had that situation? Yeah. Yeah, I see. I've seen that. <laughs> it's frustrating. Yeah, it's a tube, man. It's just <laughs> right. I'm like the anesthesiologist looking at me like we're still masking. You know, I'm still masking, right? I'm like, I know, but here we are. Here we are. Twenty minutes later, sometimes. Sometimes yep. tubes can be very humbling. But I've heard of people do using a laser to try to tighten the drum for things like this. Have you ever done that, Doctor Goots? You know, I. I don't, some people have done that. I believe a CO2 or carbon dioxide laser is a little bit better for that. I don't, I don't use carbon dioxide laser. Um, I use a, a 532 nanometer diode laser. I haven't done that. I know Brandon Isaacson has uh, tried that a couple of patients and I don't think he had all that great of success, but it's been described in literature, but I haven't had much success with that. I think it, it just, if it's that atrophic, you're probably going to create a hole in the drum anyway. Yeah. Um, yeah. It, it's really yeah. fancy. Mm-hmm. And then do y'all see how some of these patients, I've had a handful where the tube medializes and I feel like it's in some of these chronic ear mutation tube patients Mm -hmm. where literally they've had a tube where, you know, and it's, you know, medialized into the middle ear. Or do you feel like eustachian tube dysfunction or the severity of it is related to tubes occasionally getting medialized into the middle ear? Or is that just a bad outcome, just, you know, bad luck, it just happened? I think it just happens. I've only seen that a handful of times. So I'm not really sure if it's a higher incidence in somebody with eustachian dysfunction that's more severe than others. I typically will just leave the tube. If it's not causing problems, I'll leave the tube in place. You know, we leave titanium, silastic, all kinds of materials in the middle of your space and for, you know, lifetime. And, you know, tubes are pretty inert. And so if they're not causing problems, I would just leave the tube in. Sometimes I have had with, if they need another tube, you can make a small incision, retrieve the tube and place a new tube. I did have one patient that had some kind of vague, vague otalgia, you know, some irritation. And she was really convinced this from the tube. I just did a, uh, tympanomany and just, it just lifted the, the tympanic membrane and removed the tube and she was better. I don't know if hmm. for whatever reason, but generally speaking, I'll just leave the tube in place unless it's causing some problems. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. Because sometimes I've, you know, you could go in trying to get it out and you've, now you've had a perf or if it's not broke <laughs> or causing, yeah, I totally agree. So, so, you know, putting in tubes it should, it should theoretically relieve the eustachian tube dysfunction, right? Because you've, you've kind of bypassed the need to have a eustachian tube. But if you have these patients who are still having issues where they're, they're either, their tubes are falling out or they're always clogged or they're having a lot of drainage. What at what point do you start to consider actually doing procedures directed at the eustachian tube or nasopharynx, things like that? You mean like sort of like the balloon eustachian dilation procedure? Yeah, like like just yeah, either um, adenoidectomy or balloon, okay. or some people will do like eustachian tuboplasty and like get the microdebreeder and you know take down you know if, if the eustachian tube has become sometimes you'll get some like a lymphoid hypertrophy of the um, the torus of the torus yeah. yeah. I mean, is, how does that um, come into play in your practice or does that For me, I think, um, you know, for adenoidectomy, I'm, you know, I think if it's our second set of tubes, I would do an adenoidectomy. 
I don't, I don't, I think I should think about an adrodectomy more frequently for these patients with chronic stage of dysfunction that are older than your three, four, five, six year old. You know, I don't always think about that, but it's not a bad idea if they have adenoid hypertrophy and they're, they're getting recurrent retraction. It's probably, you know, it's pretty low risk room of adenoids and that could potentially help. Like if you're talking about like a say, lymphoid hyperplasia around the orifice of the eustachian, I've never removed that before. I have no experience doing that. I'd probably try to treat them medically with nasal steroid sprays. Mass, have you, have you ever done that or had success with that? I, um, the, I think that the, the balloon is probably the most helpful, but I've had patients where they have big adenoids and they also have, you know, it looks like their adenoids are just kind of continuing like onto the mucosa of the eustachian tube and I'll use the microdebreeder to kind of trim that. It doesn't come up that often, but I, I have done that before. I wonder if that helps it scar laterally or I guess medially. Like, do you think it helps the torus kind of scar medially Maybe. to help open it up or? I don't know. The more I, the more I look at eustachian tubes, the more I feel like most of the problem is intraluminal. Mm. And so I think that's why the balloon works so well is because, you know, when they did studies looking at the mucosa after balloon, it, the, there was actually cheering of the cartilage, change in the, that the inflammation within the mucosa. And so it's some, something about that squishing and crushing is actually changing how that tissue is acting. And so sometimes patients will have terrible eustachian tube dysfunction. And I look back in their nose and there's not a ton of adenoid tissue. There's not like an actual physical obstruction blocking the tube. It's just the within the lumen of the tube, it's just swollen and not working. I don't know. Yeah. I, I think the balloon's intriguing and the, the, the struggle now is getting insurance to approve it. And mm -hmm. yeah. I've had, you know, I can recall one patient that had an acoustic neuroma and removed the acoustic neuroma and it was a large tumor. They didn't have hearing. They lost the rest of the hearing with the surgery. And then on the other ear, they, they were getting recurrent serous otitis media. And of course, when they have that, their hearing would drop terribly and they couldn't communicate. And I placed three tympanoscopy tubes and I'm, you know, at some point you're like, do I want to keep placing a tube in an only hearing ear with the risk of perforation and that very small risk of a secondary acquired cholesteatoma or some other issue. So they actually pay cash for the uh, balloon um, procedure, <laughs> which, you know, if you look at the literature, all comers is maybe 60% successful somewhere around there is what I usually tell patients. But we did the balloon and two years later, the patients had no further uh, problems with um, serous otitis media. And, uh, you know, I think in, in my opinion, the balloon's most effective for patients with kind of mild to moderate, you say dysfunction, you know, you know, like your flight attendant or your diver or somebody like this patient that is having recurrent serous otitis media and only hearing ear, you know, it seemed like the balloon could be very useful for those patients. You know, I think the patients that have these just terrible usage tubes that you get re retraction pockets within six to nine months after, after surgery for cholesteatoma. I don't know how well they'll do with the balloon, but the real frustrating thing is just, it's really hard to get reimbursed for it. Right. Yeah. I've experienced that a lot lately too, which is unfortunate because it, it, you know, it's, it's, it's nice to have something to offer to patients, but then when they turn around and it's not covered, then it's, you know, it's frustrating on for everyone. Cause, right. cause I feel like they're looking at you like, why'd you, why are you trying to sell me something? You know, why, it, yeah. Why do you risk this? Like, you know, it's yeah, thousands it's, of dollars. So. For sure. Yeah. yeah. So, so yeah, it sounds like in, in your experience, patients who just have, you know, that's these chronic ears where they have 
chronic retraction or cholesteatoma that you just kind of have to address the address the eardrum and the eustachian tube itself may not may not have a, a good solution yet to fix that but you kind of have you know work around it by addressing the eardrum yeah i think it i still think unfortunately you know we're we just have to address the problems that the chronic eustachian dysfunction causes you know maybe if we get more literature on the balloon we can you know, figure out which patients would benefit or not um, from that. And, you know, if I, and I, not infrequently, if I, if somebody has recovery traction, you know, I've gone, I've done two or three surgeries, but they, they've retracted. I'll, I'll place a tympanoscopy, like a T-tube through cartilage, just during the tympanoplasty. And again, I've had very good success with that. It's always that I can't tell you it perfectly when or when I do that or when I don't do that, it's sort of a, a gestalt and knowing the patient and, you know, yeah. usually it's on a recurrent retraction box thing like that but that's always an option and again like ashley was saying you sort of have bypass you station tube at that point well one one last question for you guys how often do y'all think about allergy or do an allergy evaluation for these patients i feel like um you know in some of my more so my adolescence my like or as young as 10 once we're like on a fourth fifth set of ear tubes or just if they're eardrum every time i see them it's, you know, medialized and retracted and, you know, maybe they may or may not have a little bit of an ear bone gap, but how often do y'all maybe send them or do an allergy evaluation on these patients or think that's, you know, a, a contributory factor? You read my mind. I was about to, I was about to bring that, bring up allergies too. But for me, I, I send people for allergy testing and, and consideration of allergy immunotherapy when they have when they're failing kind of the maximum medical therapy. So, you know, I, I like nasal steroids as a starting place. So like Flonase or Nasonex or something like that. And then sometimes I'll add on like um, elastine nasal spray, which is a nasal antihistamine spray. I may have them use decongestants occasionally, like, you know, Sudafed behind the counter, depending on if what their what kind of medical comorbidities they have. But but once they're not getting any benefit out of those, I think it can be helpful to um, do allergy testing and consider allergy immunotherapy. What about you, Dr. Coots? Yeah, that's that's a similar approach I have. You know, if 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 they've never really tried allergy therapy, you're gonna probably do that before allergy testing, right? Allergy testing is gonna be if you're gonna consider immunotherapy as part of their treatment. I mean, I think one of the interesting, you know, do these some patients you sort of think allergy, but they don't have the nasal congestion and the, you know, the itchy eyes, the sneezing and things. I don't actually, do you, do you still think allergy sometimes or how do you differentiate, you know, do they just have eustachian dysfunction? Is that their only allergy symptom or do you, or do you more look for those other symptoms of, you know, allergies, like the nasal congestion and things? Yeah. I, if patients don't have the sneezing, runny nose, itchy eyes, nasal congestion kind of symptoms, then I feel less confident that they're going to benefit from starting Flonase. But I, I will still talk to them about giving it a try, you know, especially if we've, if we're struggling with finding, you know, if they've had tubes and it's, their tubes are falling out or if they've had a tube and they're still having in symptoms or stuff like that. Do you, um, do you ever have patients do like the Otovent or the ear popper or have them Valsalva and clear their ears, you know, Chuga, times a day? Yawn. <laughs> yeah. You know, that's actually a good point. You know, sometimes you'll see patients that have uh, a type, like a chronic type C tympanogram. They do have some fullness. 
or maybe they have a type A, but you're sort of convinced they have some mild eustachian dysfunction. I'll have them, you know, autoinsufflate in the clinic, you know, do a Valsalva. And if I can see that drum moving and they're able to clear their ears, I'll tell them, hey, do that six, eight, 10 times a day. And then, you know, oftentimes if you're, if they're doing that, you don't need to place a tympanoscopy tube. And I have used some of the ear popper otovents for some patients. I always feel that, you know, if they can, they're probably either going to be able to autoinsulate on their own, or it's going to be so severe, even with the ear popper otovent, they're not going to be to be able to insulate their ears. So I don't, I, I think it's reasonable to try that. I've had a few patients have success. They like using it. It makes their ears feel better. So I think it's worth, worth a try. And I think these, now you can get these things for, I think the otovents, you know, $15, $20 and the, the kind of ear popper sort of devices are around $60 now. So, I mean, you know, patients could try these and, and they're not, they're not two or $300, anything of that sort. Have y'all ever used these in your uh, teenage patients or, you know, 10 year old patients? I was going to ask you, I was going to ask you, Gopi, have you had experience? I, I you know, I haven't I, tried that. I haven't, I think I've recommended it before to that sort of eight year old and up where, you know, again, They've had, you know, anywhere between two to five sets of tubes and the parents are just done with it. You know, I think I've recommended it. They, you know, a lot of times because of cost, families may not get it. Once they, you know, I'll show them a video, like a YouTube video, so they know what, what, it, what it is. And, you know, that may or may not kind of intrigue them. So I haven't, you know, haven't had too much experience with it. So I tend to just, you know, try that. Okay, we'll try to yawn and peach your nose and swallow and chew sugar-free gum and, you know, that, that they end up coming back, most of them, and we end up having to do other things or just uh, follow them and see how they do. A lot of those families, even if he does, the patient doesn't have allergy symptoms, some of them will take me up on, all right, let's do an allergy eval because maybe there's something mild because it's usually, you know, sp- you know, spring to summer when there's an effusion and it might clear up in the fall or so I still feel like it's kind of nebulous and you end up kind of um, just trying to work with the parents and the, and the child. And a lot of it, you know, is going to be other things like, you know, school and how they're doing with hearing in class and their grades and at home and, you know, quality of life as well. So it's yeah. definitely, I think the, the Odovin's a good thing to try. We have it in our clinic and we can just sell it to the patients kind of on the spot. And our nurse will, we usually with the pediatric patients, our nurse will show them how to do it. And, you know, since it has the balloon, it's kind of yeah. more, it, you know, they kind of make it like a game. And so I, I definitely think it's worth, um, it's worth a try and it's, you're, you're not losing much. So, but what do you, what do you say to patients, Dr. Coots, who I've had patients ask me how, how hard they can try to clear their ears safely. Does that make sense? No, it does make sense. I mean, I guess you worry about like creating barotrauma or a perilymphatic fistula. You know, I, it'd be, it'd be pretty, pretty difficult. I think, you know, trying to clear their ears, you know, if they're able to clear their ears, they're probably, you know, if it's difficult to clear their ears, they're probably gonna have a hard time causing harm by trying too hard. I've never, I can't recall a patient coming in that's harmed themselves trying to clear their ears, but I would probably tell them this. I mean, just because <laughs> there are some personalities out there, they're going to, I'm going to win no matter what, right? right yeah. Pop this ear. And then I think as they could technically cause problems during that, so, <laughs> you know, yeah. but the, the really competitive patients, right? <laughs> but um, yeah, I mean, I, I agree when I watch them, you know, a, lot, a lot of times I'll watch them in a clinic and so I can say, Hey, okay, that's good. And that's, if you can't pop it, trying that hard, you know, you're not gonna be able to, to, to clear your ears. 
So, yeah. but you know, every now and then you'll have a patient that, you know, you get diving injuries. Um, that's usually where they aren't clearing their ears, but they're just have so much negative pressure. And I, I remember, I recall a patient that was doing really vigorous uh, setups one time and they cause a perilymph fistula, again, not, not clearing their ears, a little different mechanism, but yeah, I haven't, I've never, I, I cannot recall seeing a patient that's caused damage um, doing a ball saw or, or insulating their ears, but I guess it's possible. I don't know if, if Ash, have you ever seen that or do you recall I, that? I no, I'm kind of like you. I'll, if they're doing it in clinic and it looks like they're trying really hard and nothing's happening, then I'll just say, okay, it looks like you're not going to be able to. You win. You win. It's good. <laughs> yeah, that's the <laughs> What, you know, some people talk about the middle ear as it's like a, another sinus, right? And um, could talk to us about, you know, topical steroid therapy for the middle ear in the same way that we use Flonase, you know, as a topical treatment for the nose and sinuses, you know, there are some patients that I think benefit from having topical steroid therapy to the middle ear in, on a regular basis. You know, usually patients who have a tube, but just are kind of always having drainage or kind of always have that middle ear inflammation. Do you see that? I do see that, you know, I, oftentimes I'll treat them with a combination fluoroquinolone, steroid like Cipro-Dex. And I don't know if it's the Cipro or the dexamethasone that's helping. I have patients like that have eosinophilic otitis media, it's very difficult condition to treat. And I'll place those patients on chronic uh, steroid drops. I mentioned off-label use here, you know, sometimes because of cost, you can use ophthalmic dexamethasone. It's pretty inexpensive because these patients are going to need these drops for maybe ever. Yeah. So yeah, that, that's kind of what I think of, or you know, these patients get a lot of polyp, of polyp changes in granulation tissue. You know, if there are these chronic tubotoria patients are very challenging, Gopi, you may have more experience than I do with these patients. You know, it seems like we see that more in the pediatric population. Yeah. I'm curious, how do you treat those patients? You know, it's oral, as much as I can, oral toilet. So I have two groups. I, I think of it as two groups. One is the otherwise healthy kid that has some tubotoria that you can do the oral toilet, suction in clinic, try some mastery powder, try a little Cipridex have them come back, you know, maybe section them out again, make sure it's not a fungal otitis externa. And depending on how they're doing, you might have tricks such as, you know, well, peroxide diluted with distilled water to kind of just, you know what I mean? Thin out the junk and then, you know, Cipridex if you need it or versus, hey, this is not bacterial, you know, Vilsol or like white vinegar, distilled water type stuff, dry ear, hair dryer kind of thing. And then I think of my other patients that are like, my primary ciliary dyskinesia patients that just have that chronic thick mucoid tubotary, and that's a little bit different, right? There's a different reason for it. For those patients, and it's hard because I, I I'm actually I have one of my younger patients comes to mind. She's four, and you know, she's chronic tubotoria. Obviously, she doesn't want to be papoosed every time she comes to clinic to get her ears sectioned out, you know. And I don't want to do it either. So, just because otherwise she's not going to let me look in her ears in the future. So. What I have the family doing is, you know, those blue bulb syringes, the baby ones for the noses, because it funnels out, they can't really put it in too deep. And I always tell them don't put it in more than five to seven, five millimeters or so, but they, you know, and she basically sucks, sucks out the child's ear before bed. And she'll also do a little couple times a week, a little diluted peroxide with distilled water. It doesn't burn. I always ask, does it burn? Sometimes she'll use Cipridex, just something to thin out the mucus. And it seems to help when I see her in clinic, there's always a little drainage around the tube, but you can actually see the tube. Her audios are normal and her speech is good. 
So that's what I do for her. Every once in a while, do I'll, will I just bite it? You know, just like, God, this has been going on for a long time. We just need to take the tube out. And obviously we want to make sure we're not missing anything like a cholesteatoma or, you know, something underlying that, you know, God forbid, like an acquired or something. And every once in a while that can happen too. I'm not quick to scan unless I'm really concerned for a cholesteatoma or something. Sometimes I'll have patients come to me for tubotoria after they've had like a CT scan, which so I'm definitely not quick to scan. And then every once in a while, if, you know, if it's a younger kid, again, four or under, and, you know, they have other you know, recurrent history of pneumonias or other bacterial infections. So I think of, you know, maybe we need to consider something like cystic fibrosis or an immune workup. So that's kind of how I deal, think of tuberculosis in those little buckets, I guess. Yeah, that's, that's helpful. That's uh, it's very challenging and frustrating. I think everybody, you know, gets some tricks to try and, and certain things may work for different patients that may not work for another patient, but those are, those are good. I learned something there for sure. <laughs> and, and, I'll feel uh, those ideas from you. <laughs> right, right. Dr. Goods, you mentioned eosinophilic otitis media. How do you diagnose that? Well, a lot of times they'll have asthma as well, you know, as part of their systemic illness, but it's, you know, they just get these, this really tenacious granulation tissue. You know, a lot of times you place tympanoscopy tubes, you have granulation tissue growing out of the tubes. And it's, it can be somewhat resistant to even steroid drops. It's very challenging to, to treat. There's some systemic therapies that, that work for the asthma aspect of it that you can try. Um, that really haven't, they have really, there haven't been many studies for the otitis media aspect, but it's a challenging, um, condition to treat. And you sort of, you know, optimal I'll send them to an allergist to, to kind of work all that up, but you just, you kind of see these patients, I mean, they have really thick, thick drainage and, and granulation tissue and just very unusual. So when you see a couple of these patients, you go, okay, that's what that is. Yeah. It's just a very classic. Yeah. It's, and it's bilateral, right? Cause it's a systemic problem. Yeah. Wow. Well, we've kind of been all up <laughs> the program of the station <laughs> today. Uh, <laughs> it's been great. Eustachian tube dysfunction. Eustachian tube. It truly is a eustachian tube disorder. Mm-hmm. Top. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. Yeah, exactly. Well, yeah. Have we have we missed anything, Doctor? Yeah. Any referrals or uh, yeah before we land this plane? You know, so I would, you know, one of the thing, you know, these patients present with uh, ear fullness, you know, probably the most common is eustachian dysfunction. And then, you know, you need to think patchless eustachian. We talked a lot about that, TMJ dysfunction. But another condition to think about super canal dehiscence, um, which we can go on for another hour about that. We won't do that. Maybe but, uh, for the next time. <laughs> for the next time. But those patients, you know, they can present with just fullness in their ear. And you've looked at all these other problems and typically just real quickly, what if you do a tuning fork exam, they'll typically hear the fork in that ear. A lot of times they'll have a kind of a, a conductive hearing loss of intact reflexes, but think about superior canal dehiscence as a much less common cause of chronic ear fullness, uh, but one you don't want to miss just, you know, these, it won't harm the patient, but you know, you're, you're going to do all these sort of treatments for eustachian dysfunction and pass eustachian tube. And, and really they just have um, super canal dehiscence. So that's, I, I would add that in there's something to think about. Yeah, for sure. And you get a CT temporal bone to yeah. violate. Yeah. And then you're, then you're going to have, you're going to see missing bone over the superior semicircular canal. And there's a, you know, you can verify that with VIMP testing and, and uh, go from there. But that's, I think it's one diagnosis to, to keep in mind a differential diagnosis for chronic ear fullness. 
Awesome. Sounds great. Well, thank you so much for your time, Walter. We really, I learned a ton. I enjoyed it. Thank you for having me and enjoyed it. It's a difficult uh, topic for sure. And I, I learned a lot. I think uh, talking to people about it, how they, they treat eustachian dysfunction is helpful. So. Hey, well, next time you're bringing your friend, the tuba. Oh yeah, we got to. <laughs> that's right. We'll bring in the tuba next time. So you got to look for the next episode. And, and if people want to look you up and learn more about you, where can they go? You can go I'm on Twitter for uh, EarDoc1 is my Twitter and Instagram handle. Uh, actually, Instagram is Walter Coots, MD. Uh, Twitter's EarDoc1. And then if you want to go to my website at UT Southwestern, it's drcoots.com. Awesome. Love it. Awesome. Very good. Thank you so much, Dr. Coots. I really Bye. enjoyed it. You guys have a great day. All right. You too, all. See you later. Bye. So we just want to thank all of our listeners for tuning in today. We're excited for upcoming uh, podcasts with you all. We are open to suggestions, topics, or if you want to come on the show and be a speaker, we'd love to have you. Yeah. Please reach out to us. Let us know how, what you thought about Dr. Coots and your station tube dysfunction. We'll see you back here real soon. Find us on Twitter. Our handle is at underscore backtable ENT. And we will see you next time. Be well. And it's a wrap. It's a wrap.